I'm so pleased to be sharing our fourth instalment of this brilliant Fully Alive series that, that uh, we've been in so far. And we're going to get cracking straight away. There's some amazing things that I think Holy Spirit has for us this morning. And we're going to focus in on a basic personal need that every single human has, every single one of us has. And that is to see ourselves, to view ourselves as significant and as worthwhile. And that feeling of significance is crucial to our social, our emotional, and our spiritual stability. And it drives us. And humanity through the ages has been on that search for significance, for worth, for value, for love, for acceptance. And it's no different today. And I don't think we need to dig very deep into culture around us to see that some of the answers to that search um, are skewed and are flawed. Now we know as Christians, I know we know this, that our significance, significance is because of who we are and the image in which we've been made. And Sarah's done a brilliant job of highlighting that cultural mandate, if you remember out, she's pulled that out of Genesis, um, Genesis 1, that three parts to our cultural mandate, it's just going to come up behind me, that we are significant because we're made in his image, that we're supposed to influence because we're called to rule and reign, and that we're supposed to be connected to God and to one another. So it's that first one that we're really going to spend some time unpacking a bit more this morning. And it seems so straightforward. I wish it was. I'm significant because I'm made in the image of God. I wish that that's all it needed in me for me to show that to the world, for me to believe that and live from that position. But I would imagine you're with me in finding that it's actually quite a lot more complex than that. And it's more multifaceted than that. And so we're going to explore this this morning and challenge, gently, I hope, perhaps some um, inadequate answers that we've settled on in our search for significance. So that's where we're going this morning. And we're going to need Holy Spirit with us, aren't we? Because this takes us to be vulnerable and to be self-aware and to feel safe in this space. So I just want to invite Holy Spirit again that we would just know your presence with us this morning. You're already here, you're already working, you're already in each one of us. But Holy Spirit, we say, come and help us be soft and sensitive to you, to be willing to be changed and transformed in your presence. We want to play our part in what Sarah was talking about just before, that partnership of transformation with you. So we say, come and do, come and do whatever you want to do. For as much as I've planned this morning and thought about this morning, Holy Spirit, I say, this time is yours. So come and have your way. Amen. Okay. First, as we have done, as Sarah's done so far in every one of um, our series so far, we're going to revisit Genesis. We're going to root this back into Genesis. But this time, having a bit of a lens of that significance, like where, and try and understand a little bit, like where has some of that struggle in our search for significance originated? Okay. So let's go back to the beginning. Genesis 1 tells us that humans are given this glorious, majestic status and responsibility amongst all of God's creation, that they bear his image and they steward creation on their creator's behalf. Genesis 2 tells us that God created a particular garden, Eden, and that is where he planted humans to carry out that image-bearing co-rule and reign. That Eden state is fragile, however, because God gives the humans a choice. So they're there in their vulnerability with one another, 
exercising their God-given authority over a flourishing creation. That's like two aspects that Sarah talked about last week of authority and vulnerability. That was there in its perfection of how God created it to be. They were in perfect relationship with their creator, but God gave them a choice. Within this garden, loaded with goodness, where he is the definer and the provider of what is good, we're we're told about two particular trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the humans were instructed to eat of any tree in the garden apart from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if they did, we're told they would die. So let's just step out of the story for a minute. We know that God wants the humans to rule and reign in his image, to rule well on his behalf, to create more of the garden that he's first provided. And I think in order for humanity to do that, we we realize that they need wisdom. They need wisdom to know how to make those good decisions in the image of God. And I think we can interpret eating from the tree of life, of following the instructions and the design that God has purposed, as choosing God for that wisdom. We're living within that design. That's eating from the tree of life. So I don't think it's too much of a jump to see that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is an alternative to that implied assumption. That that tree represents a choice about how wisdom will be attained. Will Adam and Eve take it for themselves based on what is good in their own eyes? Or will they receive it as a gift from God? So let's go back into the story. Perhaps everything would have gone perfectly. Perhaps we would still be living in the Eden state in ideal today if not for an encounter with a beast the talking serpent in Genesis 3. It's this quite mysterious, strange character, quite surprising given the context of the story so far. And who is the biggest story unfolds, like we have since broadly identified as the Satan, the accuser. And this serpent pretends to be clearing up a miscommunication between God and the humans. No, 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 no. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of of good and evil, you will not die. No, you will become like him you will become like him. And there the deceptions entered. Attaining wisdom for themselves will make them more like God. The irony being, of course, that they already were. But all of a sudden, this attaining of wisdom, this defining of what is good and evil, has become wrapped up in their identity, in their significance, in their worth. So the serpent entices humans to give up their cooperative rule with God and instead seize the opportunity to rule on their own terms with their own knowing of good and evil, their own wisdom. And giving in to the serpent means that humanity loses its rule and reign and our reflection of his image and our significance and our worth in that has begun its distortion away from the original design that God purposed. And with a broad, a very broad, I'm aware, but with a broad sweeping brushstroke, does that not encapsulate humanity's cause from that point? People doing good, what's in, in their own eyes, often for their own agenda and gain, as they're robbed of their true self-worth and become wrapped up in a continual but ultimately fruitless search for their own significance. It's pretty bleak, isn't it? But it's okay, because the story's not finished. 
God responds to Adam and Eve's decision in Genesis 3. And it's this uh, cryptic, powerful poem that gives the plot conflict for the rest of the biblical narrative. It contains our first messianic promise that the son, the offspring of the woman, will crush the serpent's head and it will strike, and the serpent will strike its heel. So if we're ever to recover the Eden ideal, we learn that we need a human who will overcome the serpent and fulfill what humanity's calling is in the first place. We're looking for a human who will partner with God. And we find out, as this narrative unfolds, that no human is qualified for the task. Even the best ones, like Noah, Abraham, David, Moses, who not so long ago, my six-year-old told me was better than Jesus anyway. But even him, even Moses, they all fell one by one. They all fell short, didn't they? Humanity was still waiting. So God becomes embodied as the kind of human that he's called humanity to be. And he is that on our behalf. Jesus. There is hope for humanity because of Jesus. He has enabled us to be victorious, to be overcomers, and to be restored to our original design. Now, we're positioned at a point in history, aren't we, where Jesus has lived, he's died, and he's resurrected. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And we absolutely live in the wonderful truth of that, and we are going to explore that a little bit later on. But we do need to be aware that the way we view ourselves, as we're considering this morning in particular, it can be skewed. And it might not quite reflect the truth of how God sees us and the victory that Jesus has won for us. Because, of course, we do not think and create opinions and our view of ourselves in a vacuum. It's shaped, in part at least, by an imperfect culture around us, which still reflects the aftermath of our exit from Eden, the reality of Satan and sin, the fact that we're not yet fully living in the new earth where Jesus is king, as described in Revelation 21. So yes, Jesus has won the victory already, but we are still at a point in humanity when that has not yet seen its fullest outworking. And there's a tension there, isn't there? As Jesus follows, I think we feel that that tension every day in the situations around us and what we see, but also within us. And I think Hebrews 10.14 describes that tension in a really helpful way. It says this, For by one offering he has perfected forever, and completely cleanse those who are being sanctified, bringing each believer to spiritual completion and maturity. Now, I love the way God works things because that's exactly what we're praying for in our Pray First today, that we're being brought to spiritual maturity. A bit of grammar for you on Sunday morning. I'm a primary school teacher. I love grammar. Yes, Emma, you do as well. I know you do. We actually had a text conversation about it the other day of how much we love grammar. I know. (laughs) I'm so cool. (laughs) Now, I'm no Greek scholar, but from the very brief Google search I did on this with quite a convoluted page that I didn't understand, I think what I'm about to talk about is actually reflected in the original text, and it's really fascinating choices to me. So, has perfected. He has perfected forever. That tense is called present perfect, and it means that an action that has been completed or finished in the past still has an impact today. Present perfect. Cleanse those who are being transformed. Being transformed. That tense is present continuous. That means it's happening now and will, it will go on to happen into the future. 
So my point is this, for those of you um, that are thinking, what am I going on about? Because of Jesus, we have been made perfect and we are completely cleansed. That is done. But that still impacts us today as we go on the continual journey of being brought to spiritual maturity. Basically, we're in process. We are not our finished work yet. And that means that sometimes we are going to bump up into aspects of ourselves, our behavior, our thinking, which don't quite reflect the fullness of what Jesus has won for us. And that is okay. That is being part of spiritually maturing. So there's a specific area of maturing that we're going after this morning. A false belief that we may have partnered with to some degree that says this. Our significance is defined by our performance and by the approval of others. Our significance is defined by our performance and our approval of others. And the approval of others, sorry. And it's only a slight distortion of who we are, if you think about it. Because actually what we do, which is measured often by our performance, and how we relate to others, which is often measured by uh, whether they like us and how we interact with them, like that's a valid part of that. Like They are important things. It's the two other areas of our cultural mandate, actually. To be loved, to be accepted, to have purpose, they are all God-given needs that are healthy and right. And they are, in part at least, met through what we do in our community around us. So I'm not, I don't want to communicate this morning that we should pendulum swing from one end of them being definers to the other end of them not mattering at all. Because neither one of those is living in fullness. I want to focus today, though, on asking ourselves, are they defining and determining my significance, how I view myself? That's what we're going after this morning. So how do we know if we've got ourselves into that position? What are some red flags, maybe, as we consider ourselves, as we examine ourselves, that will help us know if we've landed in that place? So we're going to look at each in turn and then think about how we can respond. So to be defined by performance. I think most of us can probably relate to that sense of needing to meet certain standards in order to feel significant or worth, and that failure to meet those standards threatens our significance and worth. And such a threat, whether that's real or perceived, results in a fear of failure. And it's at that point that we open the door and we make space for that false belief. I must meet certain standards in order to feel significance and worth. Now this false belief, as it, as it takes root in us, as it pervades our thinking, like it shows up, it doesn't just sit there doing nothing, it has an impact. And that's when looking at how we interact and how we behave can be really helpful indicators of understanding what is going on in us. We're gonna look at three kind of behaviors, if you like, that could be red flags to whether we have that fear of failure driving us. This isn't exhaustive, but it's three that spoke to me, so I thought we'd go with those. Firstly, enslaved to perfection, to be enslaved to perfection. And I just want to spend a little bit of time with this because some of us might immediately recognize that actually our natural personalities uh, lean us towards perfectionism. Now, I include myself in that. But there are actually, if I do say so myself, some amazing qualities to that type of personality. We're often extremely reliable and well-organized. 
We're self-disciplined. We're good at evaluating what needs changing and then actioning those changes. And when healthy, that's very important, when healthy, perfectionists actually are amazing at enabling other people to come and be their absolute best as well and create an environment and a culture where people can thrive when healthy. Because actually, there's a shadow side to it as well. And I think people who lean towards perfectionism are particularly vulnerable to having their performance be the definer of their significance. Because actually, it points to stress. And I know this, the inner critic goes into overtime and overdrive. And we find that our worth has become dependent on whether we judge that we have done things well enough. We begin micromanaging. We assert control wherever we can in order to protect ourselves from failure because failure has become a threat and is totally unacceptable. And that fear is what enslaves us to perfectionism and we find ourselves judging our significance by our performance. And if that isn't a merry enough scenario, that's when shame can then engulf us as a flaw in our performance becomes so disappointing or so important, or so overpowering, that it creates a permanently negative view of how we see ourselves. Let's look at two more behaviors. Risk avoidance. For these people, the fact they believe their significance is determined by their performance means they rarely expect to achieve anything or feel good about themselves, usually because of past failures. They're quick to interpret present failures as like an accurate reflection of their worthlessness. And fearing more failure, they become despondent and stop trying or taking risk at all. Thirdly, to be dominated by rules. Again, I can relate to this one. The pressure to meet imposed standards in order to feel significant can result in a rule-dominated life where we have rules for most of life situations. And all that does is actually create a lifestyle as being a, a fairly high level of stress and tension as we strive to use every moment as efficiently and effectively as possible. In effect, those things have become our idols. They become more important to us than being obedient to Holy Spirit. Let's look at the second part of that false belief, to be defined by the approval of others. So basing our significance and worth on what we believe others think about us actually gives a huge open door to us needing their approval. And that leads to a fear of rejection, of being rejected by them. And it's at that point that we accept and make space for that aspect of the false belief, that I must be approved by certain others, often, in order to feel significance and worth. So... As this false belief takes root, how might that be displayed? Again, we're going to look at three kind of behavioral traits. Not exhaustive once again, but three that are common, I think. Firstly, to have superficial relationships with one another. So the fear of rejection might mean that we find it difficult to be vulnerable, to be honest, to be open, because we think if people really get to know us, actually that they will reject us. To avoid that risk, some might isolate themselves and withdraw completely and spend a lot of time on their own to manage that risk. What's com more common, though, I think, is to actually have very carefully managed relationships that only ever stay at a superficial level. We may interact to others, 
We may actually be considered to be pretty socially adept as we smile and laugh and are fun to be around. We know how to do all those things, but we actually carefully build a wall in front of us that actually people find it very hard to go behind, and we never ever really let ourselves be known by anyone. Secondly, hypersensitivity to the opinions of others. So this might look like us being consumed by how we think others perceive us. And usually it's directed towards a specific person or, or a small group of people on whose approval we are placing an especially high premium for whatever reason that might be. So we try and anticipate their thoughts, we try and impress. We analyze every interaction we have with them and we try and determine their view of us. And that can very easily lead us to becoming people pleasers. And for a person in that mode, every day becomes a performance. It becomes a show as we become increasingly consumed and controlled by what that person or how we perceive that person or group of people see us. And that can be pretty crippling as well. Thirdly, to be highly controlling. So in an effort to avoid being rejected, we instead go on the offensive. And we are the ones that become controlling and we show our approval or our disapproval in that situation so that we can control the relationships we have around us. And we become skilled and unwilling in letting others be themselves and make their own decisions. Because of our own insecurity, a lack of control, especially socially, is an unacceptable threat. So we try and manage those things. So I think we can safely say <laughs> that to live with that false belief in us that our significance is defined by our performance and by the approval of others, like that is not living in the fullness of what Jesus has won for us, is it? We can, we can see that. I know we can. So how do we respond? Like if we can identify this with this on, on any level to whatever extreme that might look like in your life, like how do we respond? And as ever with anything in life really, it's always what's God's response to us first. Like, what has he done for us? Because he has actually done 99.9% .9 of it already. That's not an accurate percentage. I don't know what the percentage is. He's done most of it. That's my point. So, to be changed and transformed is not about us working really hard in our own strength and wisdom to be more like Jesus. That's not what it's about. We've missed it if we're finding ourselves in that point because God has made a way. Jesus, like he is the only way that we are fully restored to our original created design. Romans 8 verse 3 tells us that God punished sin, condemns sin in the flesh of Jesus dying on the cross. So Jesus, in and through his death, is crushing the head of the serpent. It's that messianic promise in Genesis 3 that we're meant to hyperlink to as we understand that aspect of the cross. But that's not where the story ends. That would be amazing in and of itself, but that's not where it ends because Jesus didn't stay on the cross and is dead. He rose again. He was resurrected. He's the victorious king that ushers in the new covenant and his kingdom. And although we might not have yet seen that fullest outworking, that is available to us in the here and now for our situations, for our families, for us as individuals. So who are we? What are the wonderful truths for us to grasp? I've got a li little list coming up behind me. I'm not gonna uh, read out each verse, but I would, I would encourage you, go away and look up these verses. We are new creations, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us. We're righteous and holy. 
Ephesians 4, 24. Galatians 4, verses 4 to 5 tells us that we're adopted as sons and daughters. We're victorious, Romans 8, 37 says. We are co-heirs, that's Romans 8, 17. And we are chosen, John 15, 16. And there are many more. That's just my personal favorites. There are many more of who we are because of Jesus. These truths are at the core of our identity as we seek freedom and transformation. And they are powerful. Do not underestimate the power of what Jesus has done for every single one of us. It's Holy Spirit's work in each one of us to make these truths become our experience and our reality. It is not up to us to try and convince ourselves of it. It's Holy Spirit in us to make these truths our foundation. In Romans 12, Paul says that we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we may discern the will of God and what is good. Now that fascinates me, Paul's choice there. So that we may discern the will of God and what is good. Because to me, that echoes of precisely what Adam and Eve were choosing to take into their own hands in Eden. But Jesus has made another way. We now have an opportunity to have that in the way that God intended, from him, through Holy Spirit, through the transformation of who we are, so that we can see what is good, we can have wisdom from him as our source. So what does it mean for us to renew our minds? It's quite an unusual phrase, isn't it? How do I, how do I go away and do that? A more literal un understanding or translation is the adjustment of our thinking to the mind of God. Adjusting our thinking leads to transformation. As Sarah's already said this morning, oh, it's like God planned it, isn't it? It's a work of Holy Spirit and me partnering with that. It's both of those things. I absolutely believe and I've experienced breakthrough in a moment. Yet I also know and have experienced breakthrough as a process. And that requires something of me. It requires me to choose that process and to partner with that process. And my experience is that breakthrough is actually most often a process. Transformation through faith, like renewing our mind, it's not simply, or really at all, about wishing for it, and going to bed one night hoping that I'll wake up the next morning completely transformed. Like, I just don't think that's how Holy Spirit does it in us. Because that requires nothing of me. I think there is a partnering for me to do of saying yes to him in that process. And that looks like doing something practically, doesn't it? So how can we respond to those two particular fears this morning? The fear of failure. Now, often, the way to learn that incredibly important lesson that my performance does not define my significance is by actually experiencing the pain of failure and inviting Holy Spirit to come and speak to me in the midst of my disappointment. That's really powerful. Though I appreciate, for those of us that have that fear, that is entirely an un unappealing scenario. Like, who wants to actually put themselves in that position by choice? Probably not many of us. Now, on reflection, as I reflect on my adult life, um, I have broadly made choices that I think I'm going to be good at and that I'm going to perform well in and that I will succeed in and have a low risk of failure in. Not all the time, but broadly. 
Last year, someone said this to me. Do you know what, Emma? God doesn't define success like you do. Success for him looks like whether you'll be obedient and have a go. Your measure and your judgment of how well you did those things has very little to do with God's measure of how successful you've been. And for me in that moment, that hit me. That spoke to the very core of who I was. And since then, I've been on a continuing journey to this day, and I'm sure on into the future, of redefining what success looks like so that it's far less about outcome. And f- not that outcome doesn't matter. Good grief, that almost gives me palpitations just thinking about it. But like far less about outcome and far more about risking, embracing potential failure being obedient. Now, I think there's things that we can do, though, small things we can do that help ourselves in the way that God has made us. So I want you to imagine that this stage is my brain. It's a large brain, as you can see. This is my brain. And my brain is crisscrossed with many, many, many neural pathways. And those neural pathways are are created and formed by repeated behaviors and habits. We use this concept in teaching a lot to our advantage, hopefully. Because actually, the amazing thing is, is that our brains have been created by the Lord to grow and to change. And we can train them. So if I know that I want to make a choice to be embracing risk, and that is not my normal behavior, maybe I need to start really small. Just before getting married to John, I genuinely had to have a semi-serious conversation about my concern of having two different types of milk in the fridge because I only drank skim milk and I wasn't sure how I felt about semi-skim milk coming into the fridge. <laughs> like, genuinely. I think I even asked John, would he, would he consider changing milk so that we could only have one type of milk? And you'll be delighted to know that he said no. <laughs> and a decade later, we've navigated the milk scenario fine. We're all good. But maybe I need to start there. I'm going to choose a different type of milk when I go to the shop. And I create a very weak, but the beginnings of a neural pathway in my brain that is beginning to embrace some risk. Maybe I'm going to try a new recipe for dinner. Oh, I've got people coming around. I don't know if it's going to... I've not tried it before. I don't know if it's going to well. I don't want to poison people, but I'm going to give it a go. So off I go. Back I go. And that neural pathway has just become ever so slightly stronger. Maybe I'm going to start a new hobby. Back I go. Do you see what we're doing? So we are choosing behaviors that embrace risk, and we are creating a stronger and stronger neural pathway in our brain. And then when the ante ups a little bit, oh, I feel like Holy Spirit wants me to pray for someone at work. Oh, that makes me feel like that's nerve-wracking. I'm not sure. I've actually trained my brain to want to embrace that risk. Yeah, I'll give that a go. Off I go. There's a job promotion coming. I don't know if I'll get it, but I'm going to have a go. And back and forth we go until that neural pathway is so strong that that behavior that we are intentionally choosing becomes our new normal. Isn't that amazing that God can create our brains in that way so that the Holy Spirit work of transformation is partnered with what is actually going on in us physiologically? I'm looking at John as if he's going to somehow confirm or deny that word. Um, isn't that amazing? Holy Spirit and how what we are choosing to do with intention is a powerful combination. That as I'm going about my daily life, trying to embrace risk, I'm also asking Holy Spirit, 
Be with me as I make decisions. Give me peace as I choose. Show me where you are today, God. That is a powerful combination. It's very practical, I know, but some of us might need to hear that. The fear of rejection. We're nearly there. A key way to overcome the fear of rejection is to value the constant approval of God over the conditional approval of people. Now, as I said at the beginning, I don't mean that we swing the other way and all of a sudden we, we don't give two hoots about what people think of us and we don't seek their encouragement. I don't mean that. But if we value something, that should look like something. If we value the voice of God in our life, that should look like something. We remind ourselves of it. We write it down. We treasure it. We carve out space for it. For me, I have a journal full of prophetic words, Bible verses, encouragement from people that I take time to add new words in with care. I take the time to reread it often. I'm trying to treasure what God is saying to me specifically. What does that look like for you? Have it on your phone screensaver. Put post-its around your mirror. I don't know. Like They're small things, aren't they? But they will count. They make a difference. So that actually when criticism or disapproval comes, we've actually created a maturity in us to respond to that well, without it somehow cr like crashing our in us internally where we feel like our significance and worth is being pulled apart. No, we've created a muscle. We've created a foundation of knowing what God says about us. Now, I'm going to bring this to a close. If anything has particularly resonated with you this morning, and you know that you'd like a chance to explore it a bit more, because I understand like this is, this is complex stuff. Like Our lives are complex, aren't they? So much feeds into it to become the people that we are. The Freedom Course, it's starting on Thursday the 7th of November. It's something that we run to just give Holy Spirit space to show us more of who we are and to bring his transformation. Six Thursdays. It's such a good thing to do if you want to do something intentional about making space and time to explore this further. For now, though, I'd love to give you an opportunity to respond like if you're sitting here and you've got you know slightly sweating palms and slightly increased heart rate of you like oh this is me i recognize some of myself in what's being talked about there is freedom for each one of us this morning would you stand with me So if you identify with those fears, fear of failure or fear of rejection, or you know that you, you define your significance in whatever measure that might be, by your performance or by seeking the approval of others, I would love for you to just um, come, come and join me at the bottom here, come forward. There's nothing super like magical about that. It's just showing Jesus that you're a yes to this. You're like, yes, come and meet me, God, in this place that someone can come and stand with you. And I'd encourage you to use this time as someone comes and prays with you to do three things. Firstly, to confess. That just means name it. Confess what it is that Holy Spirit's kind of prodding in you. Secondly, to repent. That simply means to say sorry and to ask God to show you how he thinks and to change your mind in it. And finally, 
that for the person standing with you to speak God's truth over how he sees you in this moment. So if you relate to any of this, please come forward. If you are on our ministry team, please come and stand with somebody. Tell them what Jesus says about them this morning. Stand with them as they confess.